0: For rocking with us. Check it. Check it. Julie, kick off the show.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to Crazy and the King.
0: I think the weather has finally broken here in Baltimore. I'm like really excited about that. I feel good about where we're going. Uh, we are in Q2, feeling good about the year of 22 as well. How are you?
1: I am good. I'm good. Um, I've, you know, had a little grass growing under my feet for the last 10 days. So uh, the Hubs Ooh, and I 10 are- 10
0: days, my 10 goodness. Days. Lord I have know. mercy. I mean, I, I 10, know. whole. what is the world to do when a person has to sit tight? And you know what? Tell me something. So even though you've been back and forth now a couple of times, every time you go, do you get a stamp in your passport book?
1: Uh, I always get a stamp in my passport book, but it's almost always in Paris because that's where we fly through. Uh, So I don't like I don't even know if I have an actual Portuguese stamp in my airport because I never get to fly direct.
0: Oh, okay, Got it. So it's not as if you can walk up to one of the agents, just kind of ask them to put one in just, you know, to kind of like mark the country.
1: Trust me. I I mean, we don't want (laughs) to
0: we don't want to cause a ruckus. We're not not trying to get anybody detained. Any extra. You already got bricks over there in Portugal that have your name on them. We're not trying to have you recognized and referenced by border mm-hmm. agents and other internal, uh, you know, agencies. Right.
1: Yeah. Let me get that EU passport before I muck up my U.S. passport too bad. I got uh, that. So I was thinking of something this morning because this trip is actually a little bit different. Um, so we're headed over for three weeks. Chad and Cheese is doing an awesome show with House of HR in Brussels. Um but we're at first going to see our oldest in Budapest this week. And I'm taking uh, my mama this time to oh. Europe uh, for 10, 10 days. Um, and it reminded me of how I got to meet Mama Ellis That's um, right. in London in 2019. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to ask Torn today. Give me, give us your top three tips of traveling with Mama Ellis to make the trip better.
0: Okay, trip number one, make sure that she is comfortable on the plane. My mom has no problem flying. Um, but I will tell you, we were not like in first class or any of that. And so it was a pretty long flight for my mother. And I wanted to make sure that she was uh, most comfortable on the plane. That's number one. Number two, I wanted to make sure that um, we had a decent hotel. Uh, and I don't want to say decent in the sense of because I tend to spend money on my my lodging. Um, I, I just like to be comfortable, and I'm not a real touristy type person. So when I go places, while a lot of people like to get about of the city, I really go places honestly, Jay, just to relax. Literally, like I'm not about a whole bunch of walking. <laughs> I can really enjoy going to a city and within a small radius of my my hotel, find myself some degree of happiness. So I needed to make sure that her hotel was comfortable because I don't know the hotel. I didn't know the brands over there, and I didn't want to necessarily stay. And I don't stay at large brands here in the U.S. I typically stay at boutique hotels. And then the third thing that I would say is uh, give her what she wants. You know, when my father passed away back in 2009, the, one of the things that I told my mom is, whatever you want, I'm going to get it. Now, granted, that statement in and of itself has a degree of limitation because I'm not you know, wealthy or rich or any of those things. So it comes with a degree of limitation. But my mom knows if there's something that she wants, she can have it. There's a number of things that myself and my sisters handle. For my mother on a monthly basis even now uh and so i wanted to make sure when she went over there if there was anything that she wanted she got it and she did so we had a great trip you and your mom and chad are gonna have an awesome trip
1: we are we are i just have to recognize the blessing of being able to do this uh with my parents and and have this adventure and my child so i'm very excited um and i know you and mama ellis had a great trip and we will as well so what do we have happening in the land of Crazy and the King this week?
0: Uh so let's see. Uh there's a place where five million people um go because they have something to say about the workplace. And it's a site called Blind. Are you familiar with it?
1: Um, not until I read this article, but I'm completely intrigued. Tell me more.
0: I, I'm I'm actually surprised because I wasn't aware of Blind either. Certainly aware of other anonymous review-like sites, Glassdoor, some that happened on Indeed and Compar- comparably, if you will, but blind was one or is one that was started in 2014 over in South Korea and made its way to the U S in 2015. And it's one of those anonymization sites where people can talk about the workplace and it's fastly growing in usership and comments. And for some HR departments makes them uncomfortable.
1: I cannot believe it's been here since twenty fifteen, and we both have not heard about it. That's so is it like a reddit kind of setup in terms of like we just have like Crazy and the King is the employer, and everyone who's ever worked at Crazy and the King goes on and tells all of our our dirty laundry
0: It's something like that. I mean, again, It's one of those places where, again, we could just simply go. We could talk about the experience, good, bad, indifferent. Uh, It allows us to have some, I I shouldn't say some, full uh, anonymization, if you will. Um, I guess it's just another one inside of the landscape. And the reason why I shared it is because, again, it had not hit my radar in all of this time. I literally was fully unaware of it. I want to make sure other people are aware of it. Not because I'm encouraging people to go out and bash their employers, but I do want HR teams. I want TA teams. I want uh, EB teams, recruitment marketing teams. I want all of them to at least know there's another site out there that people are using. And if you are really committed to that employee engagement, that experience of your people If you wonder what the candidate journey sounds like or could possibly look like, I want you to at least know that the resource is in the landscape.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's very intriguing. You know, we uh, employers have worked so long to create this sort of unbreakable, you know, perfect image of what it's like to be there, what it's like to have that brand. And you know, even to the point of restricting um, employees' ability to speak after they leave, you know, uh, non-binding arbitration, all of those kind of things. And when these sites come up, I always encourage HR teams to like, look at them, dive deep into them and take them with a completely open mind. You can't, you know, I, I see like, oh, I think I know who that was, or I know this or this, and this is not true. And it's like, hey, Maybe it's not true to you, but someone in your organization or who's left your organization has that perception. And at that point, the perception is the reality. So what do you have to do to fix that perception to make sure that that perception doesn't happen again, because it's it's damaging your ability to attract great new talent and frankly, probably to keep the great talent that you already have in the door.
0: Yeah, you actually said something. Where people can read comments, and I kind of think I know who that might be, or I kind of think that it may have come from this department, sort of thing. And you all listening, you can't really see my antics and my movement on video, but it talked about that in the story where organizations can, they tend to semi mask IP addresses and other things to sort of allow people to feel like they're um, anonymous, but in all actuality, a lot of the internal metrics still allow people to um, to be uncovered, if you will. And, and let me just say this to you. I'm not really all that opposed to, let me think about this just for a second. I I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm not opposed to anonymity. If it's absolutely the only way you can get your comment out without retribution. If you feel like there's going to be some retaliation, like I, I oppose anonymity when people are afraid because I don't want people to be afraid. I want people to feel comfortable. But if you absolutely feel like your organization or the leader or someone is going to retaliate against you, I feel like it's fair game because the comment needs to be in the public square.
1: Agree, agree. Great, uh, great site, great resource for us to check out.
0: So have you ever heard of uh, the phrase, uh, you're thirsty or thirst trapping? Have you heard that before? I
1: have, I have. I'm not sure what it has to do with us, but let's talk about it.
0: <laughs> okay. So, th- so this next one, it was real quick. Uh, so I was actually out in, um, where you call that? Cause California flew into San Diego last week. Shout out to Uh, The entire team over at Direct Employers, like we really, really, really had an awesome event. Um, But I was on my way back to the airport. And as I was driving, uh, my driver and I, we were talking and there was a story lowly playing under our conversation. And we both literally stopped talking at the very same time. And we heard the newscaster say that the pilot's license was taken away from them. And so that made both of us stop because right after that, it said that the pilot purposefully crashed his plane so that he could get more views on YouTube. That to me is thirst trapping.
1: In in like the worst kind of way, right? So YouTuber jumps from a plane that he caused to crash in order to record the video of it. And I think the funniest part of this uh, little story that that you sent me is that he had cameras already positioned on the plane to so that you could get that live crash. So he's parachuting. There's camera. There's camera. Like, come on, dude. Like, if you don't want to get busted, don't put cameras on the plane.
0: <laughs> I, when I saw that part, I said, "Now." Nah that really like is a dead giveaway like how many flights that and it could be a positive thing like he literally could have the the like a go cam he literally could have the uh camera's position and talk about the positiveness of flight show us different angles you know maybe a maneuver if you have to do this because you feel turbulence coming Give us that experience. You know, we don't really have, I mean, I guess that experience might be out there because I'm not looking at YouTube videos of people in flight, but yeah, that story was a little bit crazy. That's funny. Um, Speaking of at least three airlines are going to restore the flight privileges of people who acted a donkey during the last two years of the pandemic. How do you feel about that? Especially considering you've been flying or you are certainly beginning to fly more this time. You're going to have mom on the flight. First of all, have you had any flights where a person has acted an ass on the flight?
1: I have not. I have not. Neither neither have I.
0: Neither have I I, admittedly. Neither have I. So, so how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the airline saying, Hey, Torrin, listen, you were rude to our flight attendants. You were rude to other passengers because you didn't want to keep the mask over your nose and your mouth, or you didn't want to wear it at all. You made a scene when you were boarding the plane. I remember reading stories about people who made a scene boarding the plane. They just did not want to put the mask on in any way. How do you feel about those people being allowed to come back and fly?
1: Right, And I think you make the point is that they acted egregiously enough To get put on a list, like uh, a company approved Joe Smith cannot fly anymore. I mean, here's the thing is like, I knew, I actually said this to Chad a few months ago, like, how long until the airlines go, okay, it's fine, you can come back on and forgive the bad behavior, probably not the worst behavior, the offenders, but the majority. Um, And people just feel like they can act like that any old time. I mean, it The number is not that big that the uh, the airlines are going to lose everything that they have for these like three or four thousand people. It seems pretty silly to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm just wondering about that. Um, I guess the piece, the piece that I think about the most. Uh, remember when we talked about that story? I can't remember the company. We've had so many different stories, but how they rehired a person in H.R. after the person was. Um, I think the person was like rude to employees. Here's what I'm thinking it about. It was Jay. Tesla. Was it Tesla? I, yep. you, here's what I'm thinking about. All I'm saying is, are you as an organization saying that the customer is more important than your employee? That that's yep. the question that I'm asking. So, 100%. you know, and and I I had to to ask myself, you know, is it is it that bad that we keep a person off of flight and travel? And then on the other side, I'm like, but my employees matter. And whatever you did to my employees, if it caused me enough to make a decision, then I would think that that decision should probably hold now. I don't know. Uh, It's an interesting story. And maybe not
1: forever, but we literally just dropped the mask mandate for federal transportation a week ago. Like, it it's not even been long enough. The body's not even cold yet on mask yeah, mandates, right? Like, why don't we give it a year, y'all? Um, because there's a good likelihood we have to go into some sort of, you know, masking again this fall when everybody gets the COVID again. Yeah. It just seems silly. Anyway. That,
0: that's a good point. Real quick. uh, Will the three of you have masks on for your flight this week? We will. Amen. Uh, last but not least, uh, the SBA uh, dropped an uh, equity action plan, uh, which I think is a very, very good piece. At least it's a good step towards that agency and the federal government acknowledging that they need to do more in under-resourced, under-supported, um, perhaps in marginalized communities. So I highly, highly Highly encourage you to go out to SBA.gov and read about the Equity Action Plan. I'm not going to get into it this week uh, because a lot of you who are listing may not be entrepreneurs, but I know that you know uh, some entrepreneurs. And so I want to encourage you to get out. That a- Equity Action Plan has four points in it and make sure that you get out there and share it uh, with those in your digital and maybe personal tribes so that'll do it for our small talk this week we'll take a quick commercial and i promise we're going to come back we got an interesting story um and it touches on one of those words that i often say the word happens to be empathy we'll be right back do you love news about linkedin indeed google and just about every other recruitment tech company out there hell yeah I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out. So in a flash this week, Fortune Magazine dropped a new list, the modern board 25, a ranking of S&P 500 boards that exhibit the hallmarks of innovation. The Rankings methodology speaks to the why of board diversity. And if I or we need to spell that out for you, then you've not listened to Crazy and the King long enough. Speaking of not listening, that was not the case with Bay Area Police. Back in August of 2020, police walked into a Black couple's store around 1 a.m. and asked them to prove that the store belong to them apparently it was odd for two entrepreneurs to be working that early in the morning or late into the evening and so uh they harassed that couple and the couple did not take that in silence as a result the city now has a community advisory board to help vet candidates for the police department and the couple is about one hundred fifty thousand dollars richer cbs shareholders have reportedly agreed to a $14.7 million settlement with the network in its lawsuit over the handling of sexual misconduct claims against their former CEO. And while all of that was happening, Bamboo HR leader Cassie Whitlock has publicly advocated for the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to include a non-binary gender option on the EEO-1 workforce data form. Shout out to Cassie. And before we forget, according to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, anti-AAPI hate crimes has increased by 339% in 2021. And if that hand on grandpa's hind parts is a little cold in Minnesota, it may be the hand of a robot. According to the New York Times, robots may soon be working in nursing homes in Minnesota helping to fill a labor gap in that industry. Cold hands of a robot on grandpa's hind parts, Jay. Let that sink in for a minute. All right, so let's talk a little bit this week. I mentioned uh, in the first uh, half of the episode that we'd be talking a bit about empathy. And, you know, I just want to use this moment to just highlight um something that i am trying to do a a much better job of a much much better job in uh coaching executives a much better job in counseling and supporting uh and consulting with my my client organizations and julie a much better job when i am standing on stage in front of a microphone there are four words that are extremely important to me and i think that among A number of others, these four are good pillars to diversity and inclusion. And I'd love for you to actually weigh in. Uh, I've said them before, but I don't know if I've asked you to weigh in. I don't know if you've weighed in on your own. But the four words are empathy, intentionality, proximity, and transparency. I believe that if you are going to do diversity and inclusion work, those four words, empathy, intentionality proximity and transparency are vitally important w- what say you
1: yeah so actually this is such perfect timing you know you and i whenever we speak we're always kind of trying different things out that we do um in a in a presentation in a keynote and i rolled out a new one this week and i actually had a uh a, we talked about it last week with Broadbean leading with empathy how to understand and manage people who process differently. And I started looking at the definition of empathy and I found this great HBR, Harvard, Harvard Business Review article that got me really thinking is they define empathy as something that we take on. And sometimes we can become so overwhelmed by feeling the emotions or feeling the needs of other people that it can be paralyzing. And I sort of had this aha moment of, you know what? I have seen myself as an ally sometimes getting so bogged down in feeling overwhelmed in my empathy that it's frozen me. And what I did in the in the conversation last week with broadbean is said you know what let's take that one step further which you do with your intentionality which is to take action and that really is compassion so when we can recognize some uh, another person's feelings and needs and instead of just staying there in that emotional state we and that's your intentionality. And that's really what I'm kind of calling compassion right now. And in my brain, it really goes back to that ally versus accomplice. An ally feels you. They center you. They talk about you. But what do they do to change to change that? And that's that intentionality and that compassion. So I'm 100% with you. And I think it's just so interesting how... You and I are always so close, but we express things so differently um, when we're talking about that need to be deliberate.
0: It's really, really important for you all to understand the reason why she she's doing that. She, she said, so she's sitting in that listening of a person's experiences, what they are feeling. So I'm, I'm just trying to draw out the so, so you get that vocal visual of what it is that Julie is trying to convey to you, that it's really important for us to feel where a person is, but that we also are able to move, that we move uh, forward and we take some action. So this week I'm thinking about a story that we found over on the New York Times, titled, How the Elites Monopolize Empathy. So incredible. How the Elites Monopolize Empathy, and in the piece, the author, J. Caspian Kong, K-A-N-G, I believe that's how he pronounces his last name. He asked a question. The question was, do elite institutions perform empathy? He asked the question, do elite institutions perform empathy? And in the article, he's talking about Mackenzie, um, what's her last name? Fierston. Uh, Fierston. That's it. He's talking about Mackenzie Fierston, and and it, and it's it's focused on how she may have centered um, her life, how she may have represented her life, how she categorized her life as it relates to entering into college. And you have to read the story to get the backstory around Mackenzie, the family that she grew up in in St. Louis. Um, how she filled out her academic uh, admission form, where she left off some of the information. Actually, she left off all of the information as related to her parents. And what that did was it allowed her to be classified, the system, the algorithm of admissions said, okay, well, if you're not talking about your parents, then you must be a first generation college student. I want you to stay there for a moment because we're going to talk about that later in the episode. But it categorized her as a first generation college student. And so Jay, he pulls out a piece. Um, because this was actually captured in a New Yorker article that was more in-depth about McKenzie. And the university said this about McKenzie Fearson. McKenzie, it, this is a quote from U U Penn, University of Penn. McKenzie may have centered certain aspects of her background to the exclusion of others for reasons we are certain she feels are valid in a way that creates a misimpression, end quote. And this is a language um, that is really, really interesting, and it's going to be the underpinning of our story. Let's take a quick two minutes. Let's listen to Mackenzie Fearston and then Julie and I are going to talk about the story and hopefully it will emit some thoughts on your end as a listener.
2: We have this idea of someone who causes harm is like the guy who leaps out from behind the bushes at, late at night or... They look a certain way because they're a person of color, they're low income, or whatever stereotypes media and the culture has created about people who cause harm, which are obviously not an accurate reflection of reality. Abuse and, and violence can happen across all income levels and races and professions. And we've seen that happen time and time again over the last few years with the Larry Nassars and Jeffrey Epstein's and Woody Allen's and all of these people who are, you know, represent these like incredibly powerful, elite identities. And that's why they were able to cover up their abuse for so long and render their survivors further invisible because they were the antithesis of what people imagine or assume is someone who can abuse. That's really the reason I want to tell my story is because I do think it's emblematic of these societal notions of who can be abusive and who can cause harm. And we know, at least cognitively as a culture, that that isn't true. Again, because we've had Me Too, we've had all of these moments of like reckoning with oh my God, white, successful, like academically educated people can also cause harm like mind-blowing and we've had to reckon with this and still there are people and unfortunately a lot of people who don't see that and especially almost everyone who's been involved with this have also been white highly educated professionals Um, and i don't think that's a coincidence that these people are the ones who are having a hard time Believing that this can happen by someone who looks like them. The truth really is something that cannot be changed and I'm not going to let anyone tell me that it's different or try to manipulate it anymore.
0: So we pulled that clip from the latest episode of Katie Couric's podcast next Question, um, so let's talk, Jay. What'd you feel? How'd you feel?
1: Basically, what I'm getting, and I think just to make sure that I'm I'm understanding in the same way that you are understanding is so, Mackenzie um, had parents, has parents um, who are she's separated from, and she was part of the foster system, and through that. Separation with her parentals by being a part of the foster system. She excluded them from her college information um, and talked about the things that she went through as pertained to abuse in the system, abuse from her family that caused her to be put into the foster system. And that is centered to her identity. And because her parents are white and successful, the University of Pennsylvania felt like that was not a valid interpretation of her life.
0: Pretty much. Um, Mackenzie's parents, like you said, separated when she was six. Her mother was a respected figure in the St. Louis medical community. And her mother's boyfriend, which is key to the story, her mother's boyfriend Uh, Was a personal trainer who had won the Missouri Strongest Man Championship in his weight group, and here's here's the first. uh, I don't know what uh, uh, let's call it tension. The first piece of tension in this story for me is we find ourselves struggling between it's like a struggle Olympics around, well, whose issue is more important? Whose issue is more worthy of exaltation, of elevation, of amplification? Whose issues should we be taking more seriously? And a very close parallel to that tension is, should it be the issue of a middle-class, maybe even a almost upper-class white teen, or should it be the issue of a downtrodden um, coming from a less-than-advantaged neighborhood black teen? I, I want to just start there because that tends to be the beginning of that academic entrance, if you will. They both have to be teenagers, and are we parading one issue over the other? D- did you get that?
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, if this is a, a tough conversation and we we actually have the same kind of argument, for lack of a better word, in the disability community all the time. Um, you know, my struggles as someone who has hidden disabilities, who has mental health disabilities, um, has neurodiversity disabilities, is much more discounted in the community than people who have physical disabilities. Now, is mine as it you know, where does the gradation happen? Yes, there are significantly more um impactful disabilities than mine. Does it make mine not part of my story? Does it make it not valuable for me to be part of the community? That's where, um you know, with Mackenzie, I feel that where she feels like because her abuse is white elite abuse um, that caused her to be put into the foster system. I mean, it was that bad. And I don't know if you it is not easy to get a child taken away from you in this country, especially from a mother. Um, it, it had to be something significant enough for the court to make that decision to put her into foster care and, unless there's something I missed. And That's significant. Now, does it lessen the need of a young black man to get equitable opportunity or a young black woman to get equitable opportunity into the university system? It doesn't. It does not lessen that. It doesn't override that. And that's where we have to be careful, right, is that putting my white woman hat on, which I wear all the time, um, is that I want to make sure that we're not sucking all the air out of the room. That we're not being the, the vampires um, of the DEI movement, but we also have to figure out how we are all stronger and able to move together, and that I, you know, elite institutions like Penn don't get to discount someone's story story merely because they look like the people that are sitting in the room making the decisions um, and who have and have maintained the power structure for thousands of years.
0: You know, I really appreciate you inserting the example of your own personal walk, your own personal journey, how it is uh, purported in the disability community when people think about you, how you describe yourself, what it is that you are going through. Clearly, Jay, clearly, 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 we look at, um, we look at people who have a physical disability, they have mobility issues, they have access issues, you know, and 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 I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I look at you and I'll say, I mean, okay, well, how hard does Julie have it when I think about this person who might be in a wheelchair or how hard do I have it when I think about a person who may have uh, palsy, if you will? I, I, I do. I find myself battling back and forth and not trying to be um, in a state of pity for them because I've even had to check myself on that at, uh, you know through recent conversations like I just don't know sometimes how to show that I care. I, I don't know I'll give you an example walking through the airport a couple of weeks ago we' we're, we're 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 deplaning the woman in front of me and and we had a slight gradation in um the the floor it was going down but she's in her wheelchair she's got a small carry on in the the middle of the legs of the wheelchair. So she's guiding it with her legs, if you will. And the the bag has wheels on it. So every once in a while, the bag would get away from her. She'd have to hurry up and catch up with the wheelchair, catch with her feet and kind of re-guide herself. And I walked up behind her. Now, this is not moving extremely fast, but I walked up behind her and I said, "Would would you appreciate or would you want any assistance? And she said, no, I got it. And I said, "No problem, make sure you enjoy your evening. travel safely and then I walked beyond her, but as I moved beyond her jay I said to myself, Was that offensive? Does she get tired of people asking if she needs help and and then the 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 other thought of me jay was do they not have sort of a contraption, a hook that could go on the back of the bat uh the wheelchair to so I, I just went through all of these thoughts as I'm walking down the ramp towards baggage claim to get to my vehicle and, and keep moving. So you raise a very, very good point. But when it comes to the story, it really is around, you know, people who are white and others that want to be allies. How do they hear and participate in these conversations? without centering themselves more than necessary, if you will. And one quick point that I want to raise in the story that I thought was really interesting. Back in 2003, there was a ruling regarding race-conscious admissions at the University of Michigan Law School, and the Supreme Court narrowly upheld affirmative action but wrote that the practice should not continue indefinitely. And so it was then that universities began looking for other ways, Julie, to encourage diversity. And this is where that first generation phrase uh, phrase comes in. Now, I don't know this to be the launch of first generation, but I found this to be interesting. It was then that the number of first generation students on campus became a new benchmark, a sign that the university was fulfilling its social contract. Were you aware of that in any way?
1: Um, if, yeah, a little bit, I've started to hear about it more frequently.
0: So for me, it was, it was interesting. And so in short, basically there are, um, a number of generations, a number of algorithms that universities, academic institutions use to qualify a person as first generation. Here's the other tension. So why does first generation have to fall under diversity and inclusion.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't think know that
0: as being, you, I just don't know that just because I was the first person to come from, I'm sorry, the first person to enter college, I could be coming from, Let me let me not put anything around it. I just found it interesting that first generation fell under the moniker the domain of diversity and inclusion.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's it's a really interesting question because we do have massive in, income inequality in this country, and it's and it's not solely related to diversity being underrepresented, any anything like that. Um, so, first generation it, at the front makes sense to me. Um, because it is that movement between the the lower class and you know at least a strong middle class which we are lacking in this country, and then as, I'm also going to make an assumption that when people think a lot of times about first generation college students, they think about immigrants, um, and so instead of saying, "Hey, are you of a different represent or a different uh, race or ethnicity group?" If you say, if we can figure out that you're first generation, that's a way we can get around that race conscious ruling and say, well, it's not really because they're black, brown, whatever. It's because they're just the first generation college students in their family. It's a a different approach that I don't necessarily dislike um, and think that there might also be some opportunity for um, underrepresented, poor white people to also be in that group,
0: and I think that's a great place for us to end it because when we think about the dimensions of diversity, you can think about, as you said, the uh, inequality, um, income status, or uh, wealth or lack thereof, if you will. And I don't mean wealth as in wealthy, just a person's wealth and accumulation of resources, if you will. That is a perfect place for us to end it. And you know, when we ended under. You know that tent, that flag, that kite, if you will, uh, I think it's it's valuable that it is one of the metrics that are used to say, are we doing a good enough job of allowing our student body of our workplace, if you will, to represent a number of different uh, individuals Listen, fascinating conversation. I appreciate you, Jay. Uh, if any of you are interested in learning more uh, of the backstory of Mackenzie Fearson. Her parents, UPenn. We didn't even talk about the Rhodes Scholarship piece, the article, and interviews that she did. Uh, If you are interested in getting a bit more context around that, we encourage you to read the articles referenced in the show notes, and you can also follow Mackenzie on uh, Twitter. It's Mackenzie Fierston. She's at M Fierston. That's M is a Mary F I E R C E. -E T is in O-N, M. Pearson. Uh, I like her, her Twitter handle. It says, believe survivors. She's refusing to be silenced. We'll be right back with her voice. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts.
2: Join me, your host, Diane Helbig,
1: Welcome back. Loving, loving, loving our Her Voice segment. And thank you so much to the amazing sponsors that make it happen.
0: And why do we we have Her Voice? What are we doing there?
1: Uh, We are amplifying women making moves all around the world.
0: That's right. And this week, we're going to talk about a different type of return policy. Shout out to Allison Felix's shoe brand. Seish, S a y s h. I think that's how you say it. If your shoe size changes, that's a tongue twister. If your shoe size changes during pregnancy, you can exchange your sneakers for a new pair. Allison Felix is a track star and her brand says in a tongue in cheek type of way, it refers to the maternity return policy as intentionally sexist. I love it. And and here's a fun fact um, to compliment Allison Felix since she ran track. You know, last week was the Boston Marathon. And for the first 76 years of the Boston Marathon, women were not allowed to run. Roberta Gibb was the first woman to run the full Boston Marathon back in 1966.
1: Then we have Kwumu named COO Rose Bentley to the president and CEO role.
0: And 26-year-old Harvard University dropout Eva Shang has raised $400 milli in just six months for her firm Legalist. Legalist uses artificial intelligence to invest in private debt, which is a hot market populated mostly by men with Wall Street pedigrees.
1: I'm interested in that. And finally, Estee Lauder's Head of Human Resources for Global Corporate Functions, Christina Schelling, will join Verizon as a Senior VP of Talent and Diversity.
0: Hey, I was talking about you last week. I said, Julie, she purposefully looks at the Her Voice segment to see which which last names she can read. and, the, and those, those are the ones that she picks out. She's like, Torrin, you are not getting me anymore. Uh, our quote for the week is, in a rapidly changing business climate, innovation at the board level and the high performance that comes with it can be predicted based on who is in the room. That was said by Fortune writer Amon Kidwai
1: awesome so quick mentions this week join all wheels up who we've had on the show before um for their first virtual nationwide golf fundraiser an ace for accessible air travel this month long golf event can take place anytime and at any golf course of your choosing during the month of May. And it's an opportunity for our support for the supporters of All Wheels Up of all ages and skill levels to come together to achieve one common mission accessible air travel. So, Tor and I are challenging you to play, um, to help fundraise, and to have a lot of fun. All proceeds will go to uh, raising money and to conduct research for wheelchair spots on airplanes. You can check and learn more at allwheelsup.org.
0: Love that, love that. And my name drop this week goes out to Todd Corley, who we have talked about on this show. But he sent an email out um, this weekend, and uh, the email reads, in part, a note of thanks to all who have been supportive of the work in the d and space and shared feedback on how difficult it is to lift this work up under normal circumstances, but even more challenging under extraordinary events. And this week, um, or shall I say for this month maybe, uh, on Netflix, White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch has been number one. And the movie is based on Todd Corley's book, The Fitch Path, F-I-T-C-H, Path. The book actually came out in 2015. Todd is a shining light. And once I connected with that brother uh, several years ago, we've communicated back and forth on a fairly consistent basis. Whenever I ask him to participate, to show up, whether it be in my cohort, to come speak at some event that I'm doing, to do something, he has always been there. Todd is incredible. If you get some time, get out on Netflix and watch White House white hot the rise and fall of Abercrombie and Fitch and I close reminding each and every one of you to share the power of your digital tribe and define your voice be a better human let's create better culture better teams and better workplaces for now Jay and I no grass under our feet our ghost see ya.